Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 29. It says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as within a lamp with its rays, give you light. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. If you are <clears throat> new to Res Church, I want to welcome you. My name's Bradley. I'm also one of the elders here at Res. Um, and I also want to welcome the members of my daughter's soccer team and their families that are here this morning. Would you all welcome them and, and our guests? <clears throat> Uh, one of the dads on the team, I won't mention any names, um, but Joe um, <laughs> challenged me to uh, somehow weave into the sermon that the team and their families were going to be here this morning. And so, Joe, here you go. Um, <clears throat> the team is playing in a tournament this weekend. They had two games yesterday. They'll have one at 11 this morning, and then if they win or tie, they'll be in the championship. And the, our team has performed so well this season that when it came tournament time, the, the powers that be called our coach and said, um, if you guys want, you can get upgraded and play in this academy club team tournament, which is basically like the difference between academy or club teams and a rec team like ours is that these people pay lots and lots of money to be on these teams, and these are really good players, and so we got upgraded into this other tournament. And uh, you know, we're 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 a rec team, but we go in there yesterday, and um, you know, this needs to stay between us, right? Okay, <laughs> and however many people are going to see this online, um, but we beat these club teams yesterday, one one timed one, and. And here's what I here's what I noticed is they don't like that. <laughs> we're just direct team, aren't we, girls? We're not even supposed to be here, and we're beating them, and they don't like it. 
not just the girls on the team, but their, <laughs> their parents don't like it either. Um, I heard some things yesterday at the, at the soccer field. Uh, why don't they like it? Because we're invading their territory, aren't we, girls? This is the club team tournament, and we're coming in, and we're pushing them out, aren't we? And they don't like it. Here's the tie-in, if you were here last week. This is what we know about what's happening for all of us who are part of the kingdom of God, who are Christians, is that the kingdom of God is breaking into this world. This is an inhabited planet. Inhabited, I mean, not just by human beings, but the Bible's clear on this. This is what a biblical Christian worldview and this is how the Bible informs us in seeing the world, is that there's an inhabited planet. The forces of darkness are here. There is a kingdom, a kingdom of darkness that's ruled by Satan, and the kingdom of God is breaking in and pushing back the kingdom of darkness, expelling the kingdom of Satan. It's overtaking. There's a clash of kingdoms going on in the world, unless we think that the Christian life is simply that, oh, we acknowledge Jesus and we turn over a moral new leaf and, and we live just sort of this peaceful life that everybody likes us and we get along with everybody and we love everybody, that's not really what the Bible teaches. The Christian life is not less than love, it's not less than peace, but there's a battle taking place. We sang about it this morning. There's a war that's raging and we can't see it. It's an unseen world that I, I really believe this. I believe every human being on the planet, Christian or not, knows there's more going on in this life than we can see. We feel it. We sense it. We know it. We, we live in a part of the world where it's easier to ignore it. There's a clash of kingdoms taking place. And Jesus made that clear last week in our text. The kingdom of darkness is being pushed back, expelled, by the kingdom of God, and we as Christians have been invited to participate with Jesus in the coming of his kingdom. When Jesus' disciples at the beginning of chapter 11 come to him and say, Lord, will you teach us to pray? Teach us to pray. Here's how Jesus, what he, how he responded. He said, pray like this, Father, hallow your name, your kingdom come. A clash of kingdoms taking place. And that might sound strange to you. It might sound kind of sci-fi. But, but here's the reality, folks. The Christian life, it's not a normal life. It's anything but that. We don't look at the world the same way anymore when we come to believe what the Bible teaches about God and about his son, Jesus Christ. We see the world differently. We actually live differently. And by live differently, I don't just mean that we behave more. There's something more going on. It's kind of like you remember, a lot of you, when you graduated high school and you were in that period of time known as the summer between the end of your high school career and the beginning of your college career. You were kind of in this in-between state, weren't you? An old season or an old age was passing away. And you were in final preparations, weren't you, for a new age or a new season 
that was on the horizon that you were about to begin and experience fully. You weren't a high school student anymore, but you weren't quite in college yet. You with me? This is what the Christian life is like. Not apples to apples, but we live right now in what might be called the overlap of the ages. The overlap of the ages. The kingdom of God has broken in and we have been claimed. Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 13, we, talking about Christians, have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's a present reality that we have yet to fully realize. Let me show you what I mean. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. This is the Christian life, okay? It'll be on the screen. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We get that, right? You've been at rest for any length of time. We understand we were brought from death to life by God's grace. Okay, so what now? Do we just have, like Donnie was saying, we have just this eternal insurance policy? We've checked the Jesus box. So we know where we're going to go when we die, but now is just time to sort of hang on for dear life, try to keep our nose clean, be moral people, and hopefully whatever happened when we committed to Jesus will stick long enough that when we die, we go up, not down. Is that, look what Paul says. By grace you have been saved, in verse 6, and he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. What tense is that? It's past tense. In Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the reality, okay? And I realize that we don't live our everyday lives thinking like this all the time. But here's the biblical reality. If you're a Christian, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places now. You are a kingdom citizen now. Listen, that's the greater reality. You might say, no, 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 Bradley. The greater reality is I wake up every day, I go to work, I got to pay my bills, I got to raise my kids, love my spouse, take care of my parents, I got to go to school, I got to take exams. I'm just trying to get through life. That's the greater reality. Here's what the Bible teaches. What we think is the greater reality is actually that which is passing away. There's a timestamp on it. It's fading. The Apostle Paul says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. <clears throat> so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Anybody over 40 say amen to that? Our inner self is being renewed day by day. We just don't think about that. Outer is wasting away. Inwardly, we're being made new. For this light and momentary affliction. That's not talking about the bad day you had last week. That's not talking about the season of life that you're in raising young children where you feel like you can't come up for air. That's not talking about the season of life where you, you're, you're aging and your body is breaking down just that short season. 
when Paul talks about a light and momentary affliction, he's talking about this age, this life that's passing away. It's not all bad, but it's hard. He says, this light and momentary affliction, this present age, what we know to be life and what we tend to think is the greater reality is what? It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And then verse 18, this gets real potent. And if you, if you don't believe or you know people that don't believe, this sounds insane. It sounds crazy. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Why? Why? Why are we here singing, praying, thinking, and wrestling with things we cannot see? Because here's what we know. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's the reality. And, and here's what I know. I'm confident of this because I think this is what the Bible teaches, is that if you're a believer, if you're Christian, I don't have to convince you of this. It, this might not be in the forefront of your mind all the time, but when you read this in God's Word, you hear it taught, there's something in you and there's something in me that even though we might ignore it, we go, yeah. That's right. That's true. There's a clash of kingdoms. There's an unseen world that's actually the greater reality from which the seen world finds its being. I know that. I feel that. I know that I'm wasting away outwardly, but inwardly I'm being made new day by day. And I'm not even sure what it means to be seated with Christ in heavenly places, but there's something in my soul that goes, yeah, that's real. That's real, that's present, that's now. This is the Christian life, and we believe this. But we know, we know people, we know we have loved ones, we have husbands and fathers and wives and mothers and daughters and sons and neighbors and co-workers and fellow students who don't believe this. This sounds like foolishness to them. And how are we to convince them? How are we to change their minds? Last week when we talked about the clash of kingdoms, we talked about this subtle lie that I think is present and permeating our culture right now is that in order to be the best version of you possible and consequently be of most benefit to others, you need to be a person who's morally rich and spiritually neutral. Morally rich, like you, you, you're a good person, you do good things, but spiritually, you're just neutral. You're not picking a side. But Jesus didn't leave us room for that, did he? Luke 11, verse 23, whoever is not with me and is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no room in the clash of kingdoms for a neutral safe zone. You're either all in with this Jesus or you're not. You're either transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son or you're still a part of the kingdom of darkness, and that's a hard reality. And how are we to convince those who don't believe that this is eternally crucial? They might want a sign. 
Can you prove this? Can you prove, can you give me, can you give me evidence? Can you do a magic trick of some kind that would prove to me that there's an unseen world that's breaking into this seen world, and that's actually the greater reality? Can you prove that, Bradley? Can you prove that, Patrick? Can you prove that, Zeke? When you're talking to those you know and love that don't believe, would a sign convince? This is what Jesus addresses this week in this week's text, is the sign seekers who don't believe They're skeptical, they're doubtful, they're antagonistic towards this Jesus, and they want him to prove himself in some way. So how does he address them? Let's read it again, verses 29 to 32. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Can we say evil together? That's a harsh word, isn't it? It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh. So as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Does that that just sound like a weird text? Yeah, okay. We're going to talk about it. It's not as weird as it might first come across. Two things Jesus says. Number one, this generation, he's talking to an immediate audience in first century uh, Galilee, He's talking, he's talking to Jews. He says this generation is an evil generation that seeks signs. What does that mean? What, what do we mean when we talk about signs? What are we talking about? Miracles. Supernatural demonstrations of power. Break-ins, if you will, of the unseen world into the seen world. When someone's healed miraculously when someone's delivered from demonic oppression, when the dead are raised, when a leper is cleansed, when blind eyes are opened and deaf ears are opened, or like in our text in Luke, a man who was possessed by a demon and was mute, the demon was preventing him from speaking, Jesus cast out the demon and the man began to speak. Right? That's what's recorded for us in Scripture, even if that sounds crazy to you. We're talking about signs, we're talking about miracles, supernatural demonstrations of power. In our text, something has happened. Jesus has cast out a demon, a man who couldn't talk now talks, and the people are marveling. They're blown away, they're in awe. This is amazing. Something powerful has happened. They are sign seekers, and Luke says that they've come to test Jesus, they've got an agenda. That word test that Luke uses, it means, it's like when um, Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Same word is used there for Satan's temptation of Jesus. It's like when Jesus was confronted by some Pharisees who had partnered up with some Herodians, which is like Herodians and Pharisees don't get along, but they come to Jesus to test him and they ask him about paying taxes to Caesar Jesus responds to them. He says, why do you hypocrites, why do you test me? 
All that to say, these sign seekers who are looking for Jesus to prove himself, they've got an agenda. And Jesus calls them evil. Now, what might that mean? It must mean that Jesus is talking to a crowd of murderers and rapists and thieves, right? Not necessarily. These are people who are not wholly given over to Jesus. They're still a part of the kingdom of darkness, even if they're morally good people. Look with me at a verse back in Luke 11, verse 13. Jesus was talking about prayer and persistence in prayer and God's responsiveness to our persistence in prayer. Look what he says, verse 13 of Luke 11. If you then who are what? Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. What are we talking about? We're talking about good dads and moms, right? Who give good gifts to their children. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, we're not talking about parents that we, from our perspective, would determine to be wicked and evil. These are good parents doing good things to their children, paying their taxes, obeying the laws, obeying the speed limit. They're, they're, they're good people, but you then who are evil? We talked about this last week. It's the subtle lies that you've got to be careful with. Blatant wicked, wickedness and evil is you know, pretty readily identifiable. But it's those subtle lies, like, for example, that the best, the best version of you is to be a morally rich person who's spiritually neutral. That's the lie we talked about last week. Here's another lie in our culture that's it's very prominent. You've heard it before. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a subtle lie, and it's this. Most people are basically good. You heard that before? Raise your hand. Yeah, most people are basically good. But here's the question. Most people are basically good, but if they're not wholly given over to Jesus, would we refer to them as evil? That's a, man, that's a startling question for me. Is that what Jesus is talking about? I heard John Piper give a sermon a couple of years ago that he titled, The Ultimate Essence of Evil. The Ultimate Essence of Evil, which got my attention. Like, where is he going with that? One of the texts that he went to was Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm going to read it for you, a couple of verses there. Jeremiah chapter 2. Beginning in verse 12, the ultimate essence of evil. What is that? Here's what Jeremiah wrote. He said, be appalled, O heavens. Actually, the Lord's speaking through him. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. So be appalled, be shocked, be utterly desolate, Everybody, 
pay attention. My people have committed two evils. And we might think that what follows from that is, some of, is, is a long list of what we might consider to be the greatest atrocities ever. Murder, rape, theft, right? Abuse, all, you know, pedophilia, all these things that we consider just so wicked and evil that that would be what follows. But look what follows. They've committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What? Here's here's what I think the Bible teaches. The greatest atrocity in the universe, the greatest sin, the greatest evil, is failure to worship the living God. That is the root of evil, which you might say, no, wait a minute, the Bible says the root of all evil is the love of money. Just think about that for a minute. It's not money, it's the love of money. So instead of worshiping the living God, you're worshiping money. That gets us to the root of evil. There's a difference between the root of evil and the fruit of evil. What we tend to characterize as evil is what I think the Bible describes as the fruit of evil. Whether we're talking about a white lie or genocide, it's all rooted in the ultimate evil, which is the failure to worship the living God, the failure to see and recognize him as the fountain of joy and life. All evil flows out of that. So if a person's not wholly given over to this Jesus, it really doesn't matter what the fruit... Here's what the Bible teaches. It teaches the exact opposite of all people are base or most people are basically good. Here's what it teaches. It teaches that all people in their natural state are evil because they can't worship the living God apart from a work of God's sovereign grace. That's the root of all evil, and everything else flows out of that. The greatest atrocity is the failure to worship the living God. The essence of evil is the absence of worship. People, we're going to describe most people. The truth is, perhaps, they're not as bad as they could be. You're like, why did I come to this church this morning? We need to know the truth. If we go around with the notion, all people are basically good, we're not going to have a biblical worldview. Our worship is not going to be white, hot, passionate, longing. We might as well can the songs we've sang this morning. there's 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 a clash of kingdoms taking place in the world that is largely going unnoticed, perhaps, by the vast majority of people, in America at least. And And the difference between being a part of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God's beloved Son is being wholly given over to this Jesus and worshiping him as the Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus has the attention of these evil, sign-seeking skeptics 
non-worshipping people who are asking him to give him a sign. Here's the interesting thing. Why are they asking him to give them a sign? Because he's given them signs. He's just healed a man, cast out a demon, and healed him from being mute, and they're asking for more. They want more. Why is that? Probably because they don't want they don't want to believe. They just want to be validated in their own self-righteousness. And Jesus says, I'm not giving you a sign on your terms, even though I've already given you signs. Here's the only sign you're going to get. And the first thing he talks about is the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. No sign's going to be given except the sign of Jonah. What in the world is that talking about? If you've been in church for a little while, you know this story. There's a prophet in the Old Testament named Jonah who gets called by God to go to this wicked city called Nineveh, which is a non-Jewish Gentile place. And Jonah doesn't want to go. He's like, nope, Lord, I'm not doing it. And so he, he books passage on a ship going in the opposite direction. And, you know, if you've walked with the Lord long enough, you realize that when the Lord says, I, I, I need you to do this, that we really don't have an option. Uh, so Jonah gets on the boat going in the opposite direction, and God sends this massive storm, and the, the people that are piloting the ship think that the gods are, are mad at them, and so they're, they're trying to figure out what to do. And Jonah raises his hand and says, nope, the problem's me. Throw me overboard. You'll be fine. So they quick pitch him out into the sea. The storm stops, and Jonah gets swallowed up by a large fish. I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. I mean, it's like, it, it's, it's wild, but he gets swallowed up by a large fish. He spends three days and three nights in the belly. Could have been a whale. We don't know. Could have been something God just created. And it's like, okay, I need something to pick Jonah up. So here we go. But regardless, he spends three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. And then the fish burps him up on the shore of Nineveh. So Jonah reluctantly, I think, based on how it reads, he goes in, and he doesn't go in saying, hey, Jesus loves you, and he's got a great plan for your life. He's like, repent or die. Because <laughs> he doesn't even want these people to repent. Here's the interesting thing. They didn't see the storm, the people of Nineveh. They didn't see the fish swallow him, nor did they see the fish burp him up on the shore. All they got from Jonah was repent or judgment's coming. And you know what they did? They believed. The queen of the south, otherwise known as the queen of Sheba, right? If you got a King James. Who is she? She's a pagan king who gets wind, word, of the incredible wealth and wisdom of Solomon. And so... She loads up her entourage and makes her way to Jerusalem because she wants to see this guy, this king, for herself. And the Bible says that she came with hard questions to test him. She shows up. She asks all the questions. Solomon answers them. She sees his great wealth. And she gives praise to Yahweh. No signs, no miracles. She simply heard Solomon. The people of Nineveh heard Jonah. The queen of Sheba heard Solomon, and both of them repented. 
they heard the message and they believed. I was talking with a friend this week, um, Brian Alkin, many of you know him. We were talking about this text, and he was telling me about a conversation he had with a, um, I think it was a student in a gap year program that he was teaching. And this student was an agnostic, very skeptical, and he came to Brian with all these questions about the resurrection, trying to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had a list, what he thought were good, hard questions. And Brian said, you know, Brian's humble. He's not trying to brag, but he's like, I answered all of his questions with little to no effort. And the guy just kept pressing, he kept pressing, he kept pressing. He said, finally, I leaned up on the table and I asked this young man, I said, look, if I answer all your questions about the resurrection to your satisfaction, will you bow your knee to Jesus as the Lord of heaven and earth? And the guy paused for a minute and he said, absolutely not. It's an evil, wicked generation that seeks for a sign. We might be asking the question right now, why don't we see more signs and wonders now? I see nods. You've asked that question, right? Why, why don't we see more miraculous demonstrations of the breaking in of God's kingdom if that's really what's going on? It's a larger conversation for another time. I, to be honest with you, I don't know that I have a great answer for that. But here's what I think is true for all of us. And I'm talking to those of you that believe. I'm talking to Christians in this room. If you look back on your faith history, I think what you would say is true is that you have seen signs. In some way or another, whether it was a miraculous healing or not, God got your attention in ways that you couldn't deny or easily dismiss. But here's what we all know to be true also. Signs don't save. Signs in and of themselves don't lead people to be wholly given over to this Jesus. How do we know that to be true? Because it's, it's, it's right here. The sign seekers have seen signs. And they want more, not because they want to believe, not because if Jesus would prove himself, even on their terms, that they would believe, but they're an evil generation. And this is the startling reality that belongs to the kingdom of darkness. Even if they're not wicked people and that they're committing all the, all the wicked atrocities that we could possibly imagine. If they're not believing, it's because they belong to the kingdom darkness. It's an evil and wicked generation that seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, except what the queen of Sheba got when she went to Solomon. Here's what saves. Signs don't save. It's the message of the gospel Jesus Christ that is sufficient to save. And God will get the attention of people however and whenever he wants to. But it's not the signs that save. And, and for those of you, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. God will get the attention of his people 
however and whenever he wants to. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote, Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. He said, And I was advancing Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You know what he's talking about? Paul was incredibly moral before his conversion. He followed the laws of the Jews to a T, and yet he was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, I'm just going to leave it right there, and who called me by his grace, what? Was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Signs don't save in and of themselves. Signs point to or they validate that which does save, which is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says the people of Nineveh, evil, wicked, sign-seeking generation, they're going to judge you because they heard Jonah and they believed. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, is going to judge you because she heard Solomon and she believed. And now the greater, the greater Jonah... And the greater Solomon is here. Will you hear and will you believe? And that tees Jesus up to say this. Verse 33 in Luke 11. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. This is parabolic language and Jesus is essentially saying this. I'm here and I'm turning the lights on. I'm not hiding anything. It's clear. It's out there. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. That's true. Is it true? Is there any other name given among men by which we can be saved? No, that's true. Does Jesus hold the universe in the palm of his hand? Is he the perfectly righteous one who became sin so that we who believe in him might become the righteousness of God. That's true. That's the only way to be saved. You have been saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That's true. All things do work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's true. So how do we get people to believe it? How do we get our loved ones who just refuse to believe it? Couldn't God, couldn't you just like... Let me turn this bottle of water into a robin and they would believe? I could turn this iPad into a cake and eat it in front of them and yes, they would believe. No. Signs don't save. The message is what saves. Jesus says, I'm not hiding anything. The truth is there. Well, what's the problem? Verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. If a person, listen, and, and I hope this will be encouraging for those of you who have such a deep burden for people you know and love who don't believe. If People don't see, they don't hear, and they don't believe. The problem is not with the sign, nor is it the problem with the message. The problem is their eyes are bad. Let me read again. 
Your eyes, the lamp of your body. When your eyes healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your whole body is full of darkness. You see? Verse 35, therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness. How many of you, by show of hands, know people who think they see? You ever been walking in a dark room? And there's maybe just enough light that you, as you're walking through the room, you go, oh, there's a chair there. And then you, you stumble through the darkness, you bump into it, and you go, oh, that's the dog. You think you see, but then when you turn the light on, if you've ever been laying in bed and it's dark in there, and you look up and you're like, is that a person? Flip the light, oh, no, that's the shirt I hung on the ironing board before I went to bed. It's like... Jesus is turning the light on, and and he's saying, look, be careful. Those of you who don't believe, be careful if you think you see or be careful with what you think you see that's leading you to be dismissive of me. If the light in you is darkness, your whole body will be full of darkness. Be careful with what you think you see that's leading you to be dismissive of me. But verse 36 If then the whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. How is it that bad eyes, spiritually speaking, get turned into good eyes? Cody said this in the call to worship. It's not something that we can just generate on ourselves, in and of ourselves. If you believe you didn't just flip a switch in your own soul and go, yeah, I see, I believe. God did something in me. How do you know that, Bradley? If your soul is full of light, which light is a metaphor for truth, when when your whole being is full of light, what that really means, it doesn't mean you're a perfect person. It means that you clearly see what's true and you believe it and you're wholly given over to it. What? Namely, Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. There's a clash of kingdoms going on. The kingdom of God's pushing back the kingdom of darkness that I'm seated with Christ right now in heavenly places. I'm a kingdom citizen right now. And though the greater reality, what feels like the greater reality to me is what's right in front of me. That's what's passing away and what's going to last forever is what I can't see. If you see that, if that's true, if you know that, you didn't turn that light switch on. God did something in you. Can you prove it? From the Bible, I can. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said... Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. How powerful is that? So what do we do with this? I'll give you three things really quickly. And I'm talking to believers. I'm talking to believers who have husbands, wives, children, neighbors, friends, co-workers, fellow students who don't see. They might be good moral people. And you might be tempted like me to look at them and go, well, they're basically good. They'll probably be all right. But if we understand what the Bible teaches, that the ultimate essence of evil is the absence of worship of the living God. 
then we realize there's work to be done in these people who might be checking a lot of moral boxes, but they're not worshiping Jesus Christ. What do we do? How are we to proceed with those people? Three things. Number one, take hope. I really believe this. I feel this. Take hope, Christians, from the burden that you have for them. Don't be dismissive of that. The burden you have for them, the weight in your soul, might indeed be the indication that God is at work to draw them to himself and light up their darkened hearts. God does not give his children burdens flippantly. And those people that you know, love, and are praying for, take hope in the fact that God has invited you to pray over them, your kingdom come. Take hope in that, that he's at work. And your prayers are a means by which he's going to accomplish this light-giving work of lighting up darkened souls to see and believe. Number two, keep proclaiming. You don't have to answer every question. You don't have to refute every argument. Sometimes God will take a guy like the Apostle Paul and he'll interrupt him in the middle of his Christian persecuting mission and say, you're done. Get up. We've got work to do. Sometimes he does that. He stops people dead in their tracks. And yet I was talking with a, another friend just this week who reminded me of a man who had led an incredibly horrible life, been a neighbor to my friend for decades. And in his old age, my friend started to care for him, and year after year, year after year, my friend would go over and help him and just preach the gospel. And on that man's deathbed, he worshiped Jesus before he breathed his last. Don't give up. Keep proclaiming. Because it's the message that saves. The message is sufficient to save. And you don't have to have clever statements, arguments. You don't have to answer every question. Some people got big questions, and we're not dismissive of those. We can wrestle with those things. But here's where it all starts. Jesus Christ is Lord. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God has come near to you. So keep proclaiming. Number three, keep praying. Keep praying. Don't be afraid. I'm going to push some of you here. Don't be afraid to ask God to stretch out his hand and put his power on display. Now, Bradley, you said signs don't save. They don't. But here's what we know to be true. In some way or another, those of us who believe God got our attention. He got our attention, we heard the message, and we believed. So why wouldn't we just pray for those we know and love? God, get their attention. I pray things like, because I don't sleep good, 
I pray, don't let them sleep. Wake them up. Put people in their path. Disconnect them from the lies. Hem them in with people who believe and will speak the truth to them, right? Overshadow them with your presence. Blind them. That's what he did to Paul. Whatever it takes. Better to enter into eternity maimed. Like, pray big prayers that they might see and believe. I don't, I feel like God has brought Res Church through, we, we come through this Easter season where we have lauded and celebrated not just what we believe, but that we believe. And the Lord's been teaching us some things about that that aren't always easy to swallow. I realize that. But he hasn't brought us here to just sort of camp out and go, all right, I believe, I guess I'm good. No, there's a kingdom mission. There's a clash of kingdoms in which we, we've been invited to participate. And I think we need to start praying big prayers. I think we need to be going into our world eyes wide open. Kingdom of God is breaking in and pushing back the kingdom of darkness. And it's like a mustard seed, Jesus would say. I think that's what tripped a lot of people up in the first century is that Jesus did not come into Jerusalem on a white horse waving a sword. He came on a donkey bringing peace. And that tripped people up. But make no mistake, he's coming again, and that the next time will be on a white horse with a sword. He's not messing around. And I think there's a wartime urgency that we're to have. As we go about our lives, as we go about our praying, Lord, you must do the work to deliver people from darkness and bring them into light. So do your work. And like the believers prayed in Acts 4, keep us bold that we might proclaim. You do what you're going to do. Stretch out your hand, get people's attention, but keep us bold in proclaiming Jesus Christ is Lord. Because the message will save. Signs might get attention, but they won't convert. It's the message, the gospel, the word of God, which brings dead hearts to life. Amen? So don't give up. Take hope from the burden you have. Keep proclaiming and keep praying. I'm, I'm trusting that the tears that I've cried with some of you in the last couple of weeks over those people that maybe not that too long from now are going to be tears of joy when we baptize those people. Okay? Lord, I'm, uh, I'm going to be honest before my church family and say this is a hard text. It's a hard text. It's not easy. It's not easy to swallow, but I do pray that you would by your word, your word bears fruit and increases wherever it goes. So by your word, encourage believing people today that, Lord, you, you have done a great work in us. We are who you say we are. That's where we started today. You are who 
we are who you say we are. And we're grateful for that. We rejoice in that. And I, I pray that as we embrace, not reject, not try to push back or stuff down, but embrace the burden that you've given us for loved ones who don't yet believe. And her may be like these sign seekers in Luke 11 who just say, all right, well, just Jesus is going to have to prove himself. I pray, Lord, that you would, in the burden you've given us, lead us to boldly proclaim the message that saves and to keep praying your kingdom come over our loved ones. Um, this matters, and, and this is huge, and we don't want to be lulled to sleep. I ask, Lord, that you would help us in our believing and in our proclaiming. And, Lord, I pray over those people, as we've been praying all this week, save that husband, save that daughter, save that wife or that mother or that father, that neighbor, that friend. Lord, do your work and bring them from death to life. As we scatter today, I pray that we would go with eyes wide open, seeing the world for what it is and what you've called us to see and know is true. Though our outward self is wasting away, inwardly we're being made new day by day. We praise you for that, and we pray, Lord, that you would bring many others into the light of truth to worship you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.